0: We all or many of us feel that that the world could be better, that that with all the resources we have, all the ideas we have, all the goodwill that we have, um, I think certainly when we're children and uh, then, you know, people sort of try to hammer this out of us. But I think that we all feel that, come on, of course, the world, could be, you know, we read about the fact that some people don't have drinking water. Like, really? We you know we, we, we have space flight and we don't have water. I mean, come on.
1: Hey, hey, Brian Miller here, and welcome back to One New Person, the show where we take a closer look at chance encounters to remind ourselves that every interaction is meaningful and every person we meet is important. This episode is near and dear to my heart. My guest is Ami Dar, the founder and executive director of Idealist.org, one of the largest nonprofit websites in the world. Idealist.org connects people who want to make a positive impact in the world with organizations who have the means to make it happen. It's essentially a job search website, but exclusively for nonprofit and volunteer work. Ami himself has been recognized by Time Magazine as Philanthropy Innovator of the Year, made the nonprofit Times list of 50 most influential people five different years, and was most recently awarded Nonprofit Pros 2019 Nonprofit Professional of the Year. But as you'll hear in this conversation, Ami genuinely isn't interested in awards or even his legacy. He really, truly just wants to build a better world for you and me. Ami graciously took a three-hour train ride from his home in New York City to meet me and my wife, Lindsay, who works in nonprofit and used Idealist.org in the past. She was thrilled. The three of us spent an incredible day together, of which this interview was only a small portion. And let me tell you, I'm sold. Ami's on a mission, and I'm signing up. We discussed how much the world has changed since he launched Idealist.org at the very beginning of the World Wide Web, all about his new global initiative called Idealist Day, and of course, Ami shares his story of a chance encounter with lasting impact. In fact, he tells so many chance encounter stories that we eventually had to dig in about the role of luck in success. This conversation was so good on its own that I've left it virtually uncut, apart from a few extra long pauses, without any of my usual music interludes. Remember to check the show notes here or on onenewperson.com for relevant links and to join tens of thousands of people in the idealist day movement across the globe. Now please enjoy my conversation with the inimitable Ami Dar. Ami, thank you so much for being here with me today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. I uh, I mean, you took the train in from New York. Do you live in New York I do. Uh, predominantly? Yeah, I do, yes. Do a lot of travel? Uh, not that much, actually. I really? Find, yeah. I uh, find
0: travel sort of disruptive in terms of work. I'm also, uh, I got married quite late in my life, and uh, we have dinner every night at home with my wife and my daughter. It's so a pretty little sacred little ritual that we have. Oh, that's great. And so I don't travel that much. Uh, we used to have an office in Portland. We don't anymore. I had a long distance relationship with my wife before I married her. She was in Spain. Now they're here for the last three years, so I travel actually relatively little.
1: Wow. Uh, yeah. You had a long distance relationship. Where? How did you? How did you meet? I was on vacation there, and I had friends who lived there.
0: And then uh, she was a very good friend of theirs. And later on, there was a baptism to uh, for a daughter of theirs, and so I was there, and she was there, and we started talking. And then we talked some more, and then I came back here, and then lots of phone calls, and uh, then I went back, and yeah. And I knew right away. I knew in the, fir- I knew, I knew the first phone call, which is interesting.
1: No kidding. Oh, okay. yeah. What, what, uh, what tipped you off? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I really don't.
0: Um, well, the first, yes, we, we sort of chatted for a few days online, then we talked on the night of New Year's, actually. Like at 1 a.m., she put her daughter to bed, and we talked like 4 in the morning. When I hang up, I was like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this person. This is it. She doesn't know it yet, but that's what's gonna happen. <laughs> Took her about a
1: month more to also To get on board. To, to, get on board. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to feel the same way. And here we are. Yeah. So it's good. Well yeah. oh, that's great. I I love to hear that. And um, I, I love that you you immediately, you know, said you carve out this. Um, is it pretty much nightly or as often as you can to do a, a family dinner? It's been essentially nightly. I mean, I
0: have to this this will sound Insane to you, and I'm afraid uh, of of saying this, but in the last three years, I think I've been away from home for six
1: nights. Wow. Now, for context for the listener, my wife is in the room and she usually isn't during this. And, and I can't see her because she's sitting behind me. She must be seething right now. <laughs> no, she's laughing. She's No, she's, she's laughing. laughing. Yeah. We travel
0: We travel together as a family uh, quite a bit on vacations and stuff. But me alone, I think it's been six nights and three years, basically. There's no reason. I mean, I, I do stuff online. Video is awesome. Uh, yeah. My work is here. My office is here. Uh, I'm not a big fan of conferences. Uh, I think they're mostly a waste of time, honestly. Um, and so, yeah, so I don't travel a lot
1: recently at least. I aspire to that to be honest. Uh, so let me back that up though. so you you've been running idealist, .org and and what is the organization actually called is it idealist.org yeah is is the name yeah. idealist.org and mm-hmm. is it action without borders? That that was a formal name that we gave it 20
0: years ago it's it's known as idealist.org right now everyone knows as idealist.org yeah.
1: Okay, right. So so idealist.org you when did you actually found it? 95. A 95. long time ago, yeah. Yeah, but in terms of the digital revolution it's amazing what's happened since then. Yep, and it, it strikes me as you were talking about the fact that you really don't need to travel much to have this global connection enterprise that you you kind of, you, know, you you run and you oversee. Uh, maybe talk me through what what's changed in the world for better or for worse since you launched it. Uh,
0: what changed for better or for worse? My God, it's been twenty five years, so you know so much has changed. Um, I think in the world, I think. In, in technology, I mean, obviously all of us can communicate uh, better than before, easier than before. I don't have some mixed feelings about the whole, I'm not sure that we're actually more productive than before, mm. actually. Um, there's this guy who writes for The New Yorker, his name is Adam Gopnik, and he's about 60-something. And so his writing career uh, has gone on from when he was working on a typewriter mm. and faxing or mailing in his stuff to, you know, today. And he had an essay a couple of years ago where he went back through his diaries with his journals, looking back at his career and at the number of uh, articles that he actually got published every year. And he found that, in fact, he was more productive uh, when he was using a typewriter and a fax machine than he is today, primarily, I think, because there were far fewer distractions, right? So so I think, You know, it's also hard to talk about this stuff without talking cliches because everything has been said. Mm -hmm. But I think we're all really distracted all the time now. If you think today about people like, um, you know, I don't know, um, you know, people, people, you know, 200 years ago, someone like Jefferson, right? Uh, Franklin, Mm -hmm. people who were extraordinarily productive. Well, of course they were. Their phone didn't, I mean, there was no phone. You could just sit in your house and concentrate for hours and no one would interrupt you. Yeah. um so I think we're definitely more distracted we're also more connected uh for good and for bad we can you know we can spread wonderful things we can also spread hate and we can spread rumors and we can spread fake news mm. so I think it's a it's a complicated thing one of the you know one of the things that, that I do see uh that I think is is definitely there if I, if I look at the last 20 years I think the internet has allowed, annoying people to be more annoying than before. In other words, <laughs> someone who just used to be sort of, you know, just this annoying person that you'd run into once in a while, now they can get on Twitter and they can be annoying all the time. So that's definitely a big change. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, annoying people can definitely be more annoying. Is, is that because the people that each of us find annoying have, are the ones with differing opinions and we're just, we're just seeing that more often?
0: I don't think it's a question, well, you know, personally, I don't think it's a question of opinion. I think you can have a different opinion uh, than than I do and, and not be annoying. I think you can have a very similar opinion to mine and be extremely annoying. In other words, uh, yeah. I think, we you know, we all, we all, there's certain ways in which people can be annoying, uh, self-promotional. Um, for example, the pet peeve that I have uh, just personally, people on Twitter who, uh, tweet or retweet compliments to themselves. I mean, come on, what is that? Really? Uh, I mean, would you do that in the real world? Would you go around just like yelling, so-and-so said I was great? Really? I mean, it's just weird. So anyway, we all, we all find what we think is annoying, but I think obviously what the, what the internet does, what modern communications do is they amplify, right? They amplify everything. And so someone who was quiet before is as quiet now someone who was vocal before is is amplified for good or for bad. Mm. And so that's obviously, I think, a huge change. So the small number of people who who make the most noise uh, now can make much more noise for good and for bad.
1: Let's step back for a second because yeah. uh, so much of what you're talking about is, is really built into Idealist.org and uh, some of your more recent um, programs and initiatives and things you're trying to do. Why don't you... Take us back for a second. If you were at a cocktail party, a social gathering, and someone asks you these days, oh, I saw that (laughs) face. You don't go to social gatherings, no? (laughs) Once once in a while. Once in a while. while. (laughs) Let's say you were, imagine you were, and someone asked you, what do you do? Yeah. Um, How would you answer these days? I would say that I run a nonprofit called Idealist.org that uh, connects
0: people over the world with organizations and and with ways to volunteer to work. Uh, It connects organizations around the world with people that want to help them out. Or help, or get connected in some way. It connects people who want to do good with ways of doing good. That's what that's what I do.
1: That's great. Yeah. So idealist.org is 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 predominantly for finding uh, finding jobs, finding volunteer opportunities. Mm-hmm. It's a way of bridging the gap between the people who who have those jobs and opportunities, or are looking for someone to do them, and the people who want to go out and do them. Right. Is that all? Nonprofit. Yeah. All non all nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to... I want you to take me back to how that came about because I know the story is relatively well documented, but I think people would be really interested to hear, um, you know, how it started, where it came from. Like, what was going on in your life leading up to that? What, what were you doing before you before you launched it? Maybe we can start there. Yeah, not not much. I think
0: I think that. Uh, so there, there there are a couple of, of important points I think to to sort of start from. One is. Uh, Very early on. So I was born in Israel. Then when I was seven, we we went to live in Mexico. My father went to work there for the UN. And ever since I think I was seven or eight years old, I was like this little social justice freak. I basically, um, we in the streets in Mexico at the time, there were lots of kids my age who were begging. And I didn't understand why. And so I would, you know, we would stop at every red light in the street, every traffic light, and there'd be kids outside uh, begging for food for money and I didn't understand why. And I would ask my parents, you know, why are these kids... Uh, begging. I remember one night, my dad was driving um, in traffic. It was raining hard. You could h- hardly see outside the car. And we stopped at a traffic light somewhere. And this this kid, sort of my age, came to the car. And he put his hands on the windshield uh, in such a way that his face was like an inch away from mine. The other side of the windshield. And he was looking at me. And he he somehow wanted me to help him. And I was like eight years old. And I'm dude, I can't help you. I'm eight years old. And then my dad just drove away. And I remember his face and I remember this feeling of, of impotence, of not knowing how I could actually help out. And that, that stayed with me. And in my whole childhood, I kept sort of asking and looking and thinking. And the thing is, you know, when you're like 10, I think when I was like 10 or 11, I decided I was going to leave school. I was going to go into the mountains. I was going to start a guerrilla movement. and I was going to just like basically take over uh, Mexico and, and, and sort of change everything. And the thing is that when you're 10, and you want to start a revolution people don't take you seriously you know mm-hmm. like and and when you're 10 you're very offended that people don't take you seriously but it's just just the way it is so i waited um and then we went back to israel um and i then when i was 18 i had to go into the army for 3 years
1: uh did that and then there was a very specific well, hang, hang hang yeah on. Yeah, yeah sorry <laughs> <laughs> i think you're so used to telling your own story you no, you're no, gonna, no I... uh, l- 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 you were in the army in israel yep can you can you give us a little bit more about that? Because yeah, yeah. I, I was, think that's I, I'm, totally I'm, unusual to most people. I'm going
0: people. to, uh, yeah. So basically I, I, we went back to Israel, which is where I was from. We went back at 15 uh, for high school. And then when you're 18 then, and, and certainly when I was you know younger, uh, all men had to go for three years and all women had to go for two years, which is just, just the way it is. You don't think about it. You don't question it, certainly not then. It's, it's hard to explain to someone who's not from there, but it's as deeply part of your trajectory as, you know, kindergarten, primary school, and high school is here. Like here, you have it embedded in your head that you go to high school and then maybe go to college, but you absolutely go to high school. Mm-hmm. So there it's high school, army, and then life. It's just, it's just the way it is. Uh, and certainly when I was there 30, 40 years ago, no one was, you know, refusing. Uh, there had been a big war in 73 uh, uh, earlier where, where Egypt and Syria uh, sort of uh, invaded. And so you felt you're protecting your family. So anyway, it was just a, it was the normal thing to do. Um, And I was sort of brought up in that way. So so I went and I served for three years. And two, I think, big things happened during those three years to me at least. One, about a year later, about a year after, um, sort of a year in, um, I was in this position where um, my unit that I had joined, we were on the northern border of of the country. It's a border with with Syria. And my job was to spend several hours on this watchtower uh, every day alone. And, you know, there, there was no cell phones. There were no, I'm just alone, this watchtower. And I was supposed to be looking at the horizon uh, across, you know, barbed wire, minefields. And uh, in the distance, there are Syrian sort of bases. And, and I'm supposed to just look across the border for hours and see if anything strange happens. That was, that was the job. And one day I had this thought that sort of made me laugh out loud. I remember I was alone in this tower and suddenly I burst out laughing. And I laughed because a um, little background here is that um, a few months earlier, as I was getting to know the guys in my own unit, I realized that some of them are, you know, great guys that I would just like trust with my life. And we've all met people like that in our life. You run into someone like, oh my God, this person is like my kind of person. Mm-hmm. And other guys, I was like, eh. And the way I thought about it in my head was that some of these guys would, and I knew it, they, they would give me their last pair of dry socks if I ever needed them. Some of them might steal mine if they needed them. <laughs> and that's how I thought about them. I had this like image in my head. And so one day I was up on the tower. Um, I was looking through a telescope. And I don't know if the, the Syrian soldiers in the distance in this valley, they had a few hours off and they were, they were playing uh, soccer. And I could, I could see them playing. I could even hear some laughter coming up sort of across the mountain. And there was something um, in that moment that completely humanized them in my eyes. And this is, again, hard to explain if you haven't been there, although right now we're all so polarized that maybe this makes more sense. When you grew up in a, in a conflict zone or in a polarized society, Um, it's very natural to dehumanize the other side. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're not exactly human. If you saw them as human as you are, it'd be very hard to fight them. You can fight them because they're not exactly human. And so I'm seeing them playing. They become completely humanized in my eyes. And suddenly I have this flash and I think, wait a second, wait a second. If I want to join them now, there would also be some guys there that might share their socks with me and some others that wouldn't. There might also be the same kind of good guys and not that I have in my unit. in that sense, this whole fence between us is running the wrong way. What if all the good guys got on one side and all the other ones on the other? I mean, I have never met those guys on the other side, those Syrians. I don't want to fight them. I don't want to shoot any of them. There's some guys on my unit who if I had to shoot somebody, I wouldn't mind. I mean, I've actually met them. (laughs) So I laughed out loud. And of course, you know, afterwards I realized, and I know, you know, decades later that life is more complicated than in fact— it's not really about good people and bad people. There's a constant struggle between good and bad within each of us. And yet, I still think that all over the world, there are people who share some very, very basic values around uh, love and freedom and dignity and solidarity and joy. And if those people could somehow work together, uh, the world would be a better place. So that long story that, that happened in the army then there was a war in Lebanon a couple years later that was pretty bad. When I, when I left that, I went traveling South America for a couple of years. It's a very common thing after the army to like go backpacking for a while. I tend to overdo things, so I spent a couple of years uh, out there. And that's when I, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, this at the end of this piece of the story, I, this was the mid-80s and I was traveling across South America for, for a long time. And I started meeting people, locals, international people, traveling tourists, who wanted to do something about everything they were seeing that was wrong with, with the world. And there was no obvious way to do it. I mean, before the web, certainly, wh- wh- where do you start? What do you do? And so I was 24. I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. Um, I hated school since I was a little child. So I dropped out of high school. What uh,
1: was it that you didn't like about school?
0: Uh, everything. Um, <laughs> I will tell you a little story. So when I was three, uh, I was in kindergarten. This was actually in Peru. It doesn't matter. I was in kindergarten and uh, one, and we live very close to the school. So after a couple of weeks in kindergarten uh, or whatever, preschool, when I was three, uh, this is actually a story for your, for your wife, I, um, I accidentally pooped my pants. And uh, so the teacher, since I was only a couple of blocks from school, decided that instead of doing anything about it in the school, they would just take me home and drop me and like whatever, that was it. So I totally realized what happened. And so next day I did it again. And I did it again for the following 10 days until I realized something very wrong is going on here. I realized that pooping my pants was a free ticket home from school. And that was basically my relationship with school for the following 15 years. I stopped doing that. (laughs) But I I, um, never liked, I was bored. I was was the kind of kid uh, whose only sort of overarching ambition is for all the adults in the world to just leave me alone. Why can't they just leave me alone? Who are they to tell me that I have to go to school, that I have to list? I have to just leave me alone. I want to read my books. Yeah.
1: I, I was wanna, just going to say, wanna, what did you wish you could be yeah, doing? Yeah, I want to
0: read my books. I want to dream my dreams. Um, just leave me alone. Hmm. So, uh, so I got good grades anyway, but, but, but 11th grade, I dropped out of high school. And so college was not going to happen. So I'm 24 uh, and I'm thinking about to do my life. And I realized when I'm going to, and it was just this, this flash of intuition one day, uh, backpacking in, in the south of Chile, I realized there has to be a way of connecting all these great people with each other and with ways of doing good. How, I haven't got a famous idea because I'm 24, I have no money, no contacts, no nothing, there is no internet. It's funny to think about this, I don't know the internet will be invented, right? Like it's this weird right. thing, you're a pre-web you don't know the web will be invented. What you have right. are some fax machines and some PCs. I mean, how do you even think about this, right? Um, there's this great science fiction writer uh, called William Gibson, I think, who says that um, it's, it's become hard to imagine that, that, that for young people today, uh, younger people, um, it's easier to imagine, truly imagine and visualize a world with flying cars, than a world with no internet, a world where your mother can't find you is, is unimaginable. The world that, that I grew up in, where basically you would meet someone at a youth hostel, you'd have a wonderful conversation you know, all night, and then you'd say goodbye in the morning, and both of you would know that you would never see or find each other again. Your only option would have been to write letters. Who's going to write a letter to someone who you had a... Con- so you, know, you couldn't friend them, this was it. Uh, I spent two years traveling in South America in the mid-80s, and I had a deal with my parents where I would call once a month to tell them I was okay. And when you're 24, 23, 22, I, I wasn't very sort of conscious. Today I think about my poor mother who for 29 days every month didn't know if I was alive until the following first of the month. She would hang up the phone knowing that for a month, She wouldn't be able to know if I was alive or not until I appeared the following month, and this is only thirty years ago. This is how we lived, and today that reality of basically, you know, in two years I made twenty phone calls once a month. uh, That's unimaginable for more for younger people today, but that's how we lived. That that was life. Yeah. So in that reality, thinking how do you get all the good people to do good things. I had no idea, but I was going to figure it out. The great thing was that the moment it hit me, I never had a doubt again. It's, it was very similar to the moment when I realized that my wife was it. It was this moment of this flash of recognition oh, this is what I'm going to do with my life. And I never looked back. Hmm. Uh, and it was this complete peace. Then I went back to Israel and uh, I had to make, and, and how do I do this? I don't know. So I started writing and thinking and I had to make a living. So I was a translator, I was a waiter. Then a friend started a software company, so I joined him. Anyway, and then the web was invented, and that was that.
1: So incredible! Mean, Sorry, incre- no, please, no. I, I, I'm. Just, I, I could have listened. I could have listened to you continue telling that story on and on and on and on. I, I, I have so many questions um, that I think would be maybe some of them just more my own curiosities, but more more to the point of what we're here talking about. The web was invented. So when the web was invented, you had a moment where this idea that had been, what, in the back of your head while you were working at your friend's software company, you realized, what what, what was it about the web that made you realize, like, oh, this is it. I can do this now. Right.
0: So um, it was actually this, again, another sort of flash of, of non-intuition, just seeing something. I've been thinking forever how, how do you do this. And so I thought, you know, again, pre-web, I've uh, been writing about this, sort of try to publish a book about It doesn't matter, a long time ago. Uh, You know, we should have these like neighborhood centers. You know, why is it that in every town in the world you have a grocery store where you can go and you can buy, you know, milk and coffee and you don't have to go to five dairy farms and like, you know, do coffee research. You just go to the grocery store. Mm. They take care of having the stuff on the shelves. Why can't we have a place in every community, I call it a community point, where you would walk in and you would find, you know, your neighbors, a bulletin board and all the ways in which you could do good in that one place without having to do the research. So I was thinking of different ways to sort of in the real world and running into all kinds of obstacles. I came to New York in 92 thinking I could make it happen here. That's not a long story. Uh, I started running around the city knowing no one, but sort of asking nonprofits around the city, um, if you had a place in every neighborhood to put your stuff, would you do it? Would, would you do it? And they were like, sure. So then I went to community centers and said, if the, if the nonprofits, sure. So this classic chicken and egg thing, and I was just trying to make this happen in real life. And then one day a friend came to my house and said, you know, I need to show you this thing. It's called, it's called the web. I was like, whatever. So he went, he went to, my, to, to the jack on my, um, on my wall, to the phone jack, and he, he had a little modem with him. And he basically connected me. He, he put me online for the first time in my life. This was 93 or so. And uh, he, he sort of got online and when the, when the web was first invented, the first web browsers, uh, for those you know in your audience, again, you know we're dating ourselves here. But basically, you know, 25 years ago, computer screens, you had essentially this green text on a screen. And the web at first, at the very first, was like that. There wasn't even any sort of graphical interface. What the web consisted of were uh, words on a page, like a page of text. And one of those words uh, glinted. It, it shined. And that was a link And so he went to this website. There were only a few thousand websites in the world. He brought up this website and then one word was weird. looked weird to me. And he clicked on it. And when he clicked on it, it went somewhere else. And I was like, oh, my God, I have been waiting for this for 10 years. Yes. Um, And that was sort of it. Uh, And then in that moment, you know, a few months later, um, by by the summer of 94, 95, about 2,000 nonprofits in the world had set up websites Uh, the bigger innovative ones, Greenpeace, Amnesty, people like that. Um, But there was no search engine uh, of any sort. There was Yahoo where you would like click around.
1: Yeah, Yahoo was a
0: database, right? It was pre Yahoo was basically clicking. You'd click around. You'd be like, uh, I want to see what plays are playing in New York. So you'd click on the United States, click on New York, click on theater, click on plays, and then you'd click to your play. Um, And so I thought, wow, what if there was a place where you could go and find all nonprofits on the web? So... That neighborhood idea, the community point—an online place to find all nonprofits. So I found a couple of interns from Columbia and Barnard, and sat them down for a summer and say, "Go out there into the world and find every nonprofit website that exists uh, in different places." Again, there was no search engine; we just go and find three here and two there. And so then we we launched um, in early '95 this this directory, this very simple directory of the 2500 nonprofits that we found in the world. And we didn't want to launch it before we had at least one in all 50 states. Today, it sounds funny to actually have to make an effort to find one nonprofit in a state hmm. that has a website. It was hard. Um, for those of you who have ever done anything like this, to try to find something in all 50 states, there are two states in the US that will always give you trouble one is Mississippi, because it's the poorest. Yeah. And one is North Dakota, because I think no one lives there. I think it's a myth that people live there. Um, and when you can try to find something
1: in North Dakota. Now someone's going to yell at the podcast and say, I live there. No, we'll, we'll they're, look forward to hearing they're not, from you. because I make fun of North Dakota all the time. All the time. I, I, I have a bunch of clients uh, there. There's nothing there. So we,
0: so we found in the end, one Mississippi, one North Dakota, and like 100 countries, we launched this thing. And it was very simple. You'd go, you'd click on a country or click on an issue, uh, and you'd find websites like that. Then we added search, and then it took off from there.
1: So oh, when you say it took off, what you know, like what happened? I'm I'm so fascinated with this because I'm like I, I was born in the wrong era. I mean, I'm an internet kind of you know junkie, and yep. you know I'm I'm obsessed with the history of the internet. My parents are both computer scientists. Um, my father was at the forefront of um, uh, supercomputing and and things like that. So it's I I I when I was a kid, none of my friends. Had a computer, and the few that did didn't know how to type. I could type without looking when I was five, you know. And like I, I so, still can't type, right? So, so I was brought up in, with the internet and with computers and that knowledge, like five to eight years before everyone else I knew. When I was in high school, this is how new this stuff is. When I was in high school, we still had to take uh, a typing class and an internet class. We had to learn how to use the World Wide Web, and that's not. That long ago in history, like if high school feels like a long time ago to me, but in terms of history, it wasn't that long ago. So when you say it took off, like what, what happened next? You know, are you, are you, how are you funding it? Are you making a profit? Like what's going, like, did you like sell your house to, you know, like what, like what's going on?
0: Um, Let's see. So several things are going on. First on this issue of, of, of that you just said about, you know, the internet and typing and stuff. One fascinating change, which I'm, I'm curious if other people here have sort of seen the last few years, is that um, in the office now we have about 30 people in the office in New York, and we have people of different ages, so different you know, slight different generations. And it's wonderful how you have people who are more in their 30s, and they actually learned how to type in school, mm-hmm. and they type blind and stuff. My daughter now is 15; she's a total internet native, and no one is teaching her how to type. She's in the school; her they don't know how to type. They they sort of, you know, pick away at their tablets and at their phones. They don't actually type, which is sort of fascinating. So now there's this younger generation that actually in many cases can't type, truly type, the huh. way that, that you 35-year-olds in the U.S. can. Yeah. And I'm so jealous. I can't type. I, I type with two fingers, which is stupid, but that's the way it is. <laughs> so anyway, just about that. Uh, What happened? What happened was that um, I came here in 92 to the U.S. I came on a business trip. I was working for this friend in Israel that had a software company. And we took a business trip here. Um, It was in the fall. It was a beautiful week in the fall of 91, actually. And we spent a week in New York. And I say it was the fall because I felt completely in love with the city. I think had I come in mm-hmm. August, I probably would have never moved to New York. <laughs> but I came in the fall in October. It was gorgeous. I was like, ah, I want to, I want to live here. Mm-hmm. This, this feels like a cool place, mm-hmm. and it feels like a place that will be open to big new ideas. So I went back to Israel. Uh, it took me a few months to sort of pack my 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 world, and I I moved to the U.S. Very naively, I came here with my life savings of two thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars. In hindsight, sort of a joke. I knew no one. Uh, I didn't have a work visa. And I came here in the summer of 92. Uh, I started walking the streets. I didn't have money for subway tokens. So I budgeted two tokens a day for myself. And I would go and try to meet people and tell them that, you know, we could change the world together. Yeah. So anyway, so I, I spent two months doing that until I had 20 bucks left. And I kept procrastinating with the idea of finding work of some sort. Ah, You know, when I have less money, whatever, I'll find a job in a moving company or Washing dishes or translating or something. So by the time I had twenty dollars left, um, this friend of mine in Israel uh, came to visit me, the founder of the software company. So I used the last twenty bucks that I had to go pick him up at JFK. And by the way, one thing that's hard to explain here: I'm not a religious person, but there is this like constant faith here that things are going to work out. I came to the states. People ask me in Israel, "Well, what are you going to do there? What do you mean you're going to the states?" It's going to work out. It's all going to work out. Mm. So I go to the airport with my 20 bucks, uh, and we go out for dinner. And he says that the company growing, and he wants to open an office in the US. And so basically, next day, I have a job uh, opening his office in the US. So it just worked out that way. And so we set up this company here. Um, now, I, I <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm laughing. I, I told him, yes, I'm going to open your office here on the condition that I can work on your project three days a week and two days a week I can still keep obsessing about mine. So he said, okay, go go for it, great. <laughs> so then we started this trajectory for the next about uh, 10 years, uh, 10, 15 years, where I essentially had two jobs at the same time. I was the president CEO of this software company that that I worked for uh, that sold all kinds of stuff to software developers, doesn't really matter. And then at the same time in the same office, he supported what I was doing, by letting me have a room where two or three other people could work doing this non-profit stuff. And so I had to raise money for their salaries, but I did not have to worry about things like rent or internet connection stuff like that. He took care of that. So it was very convenient. And so um, I still had to take care of them and and sort of find money for them. So I didn't sell my apartment because I didn't have one, but I used pretty much all my savings. My mother wanted to kill me. Uh, (laughs) My friend helped me a little bit. And we survived on very little from 95 through 2000 the total organizational budget was 100k a year. It's sort of sort of a joke by you know normal standards in the U.S. We survived on that barely every two weeks. I had to make payroll somehow, and what we were doing was was free in those days. Again, you know, sort of internet history from 93, 94 till 2000. Essentially, everything on the web was free for everyone. Mm. Uh, commerce sort of came later, and then towards the end of the decade of that decade, end of the century, people started testing the idea of selling things. And so we had grown to become this website that more and more people knew as a place to go and find a nonprofit job. Nonprofits, we had built that deal in such a way that nonprofits could list their volunteer opportunities, their internships, their jobs, their programs, their events. People kept coming back for the jobs. And by the end of, of 99, we were having about 100 jobs a week listed on the site. Uh, and, but it was all free, and I couldn't pay. And then one day, I remember specifically there was a job posted by the Carter Center, President's Carter Organization. Mm-hmm. and uh, I thought, you know, they have a lot of money, and we have 300 bucks in the bank, and I need to meet payroll. What if we charge them 40 bucks to post their job? It wouldn't kill them, and yeah. maybe that would work. So we changed the system, and one day, well, October 16th, 99, very specifically, we posted our first invoice. We, we, we charge our first job, SEIU, S-E-I-U the Service Employees Union, will have the honor of forever having, having posted our first job, uh, in October of 99 for 40 bucks, which was a joke at the time, but but whatever. So we charged 40 bucks. And then what happened, you know, just basic supply and demand, basic economics, the following week, instead of having 100 jobs, we had 50. 50 decided we're not going to pay. But instead of having zero dollars, we had 2,000. Right. And suddenly I could pay these two people without ever worrying again. Right. And that has been growing since. So that's a sort of longer story. So now it's, you know, now it's more like, 2,000 jobs a week um, and we can pay 30 people and we still basically um, make our money that way. We're a nonprofit, but we're essentially self-funded by the work that we do. We don't ask people for money, at least not now.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. I, I, I love that you mentioned um, faith, that you're not religious, but there's kind of a faith or spiritual aspect in there. Uh, There's, I think that's something a lot of my audience would identify with. Uh, I have a, um, a a lot of the folks who listen are uh, young adults and young professionals, part of what you probably still call the millennial generation. Um, And then the educators and administrators who work with them, who are Probably more from your generation, but I think that the younger folks tend to identify with faith and spirituality. Um, where where did you get that faith? If you're not religious, uh, where did that come from that you that that this idea was the one that you just kept holding on to and ringing that bell? I don't. Well, I know a couple of things. One, um, so my mother, um,
0: even though my parents were not formally religious, I mean they, they were Jewish. My mother spent her whole life teaching the Bible to sort of adult women uh, from a um, literary historical perspective, uh, but from a values perspective. And she, my mom was definitely the most ethical person that I ever met by far. She was not only ethical, she was not only sort of a good person truly without, without talking about it, without making a big deal out of it. She also was great in that she could explain to you the ethics of something. Like most people that act in certain ways, can shall explain to you why sometimes something complicated is the right thing. She had this amazing ability to explain um, ethics in a way that was just that was just awesome. So I think definitely sort of an ethical education, sort of based on on you know the the biblical Jewish perspective, uh, was definitely um, there. Um, then later on, um, you know, yes, I mean sometimes of course a sense, you know, going back and forth between the sense that we're not alone here. While not being involved in any specific, um, you know, religious, um, yeah, so so religious ritual, Um, and then with this, it's hard to explain. Like I said, you know, when I talked to my wife the first time, and I go, "Okay, this is going to be it," Hmm. and here also, a sense when when this idea first hit me, I'm going to do this. It's going to happen. Um, My mom used to say, you know, that I'm the most stubborn person in the world, (laughs) and. I don't think it's stubbornness. I think it's I think it's faith. Sometimes you just know something, and you know it so deeply. Um, you know the same way that you that you know your gender, that you know mm. who you are. You know I am this. There are, there are professions I think there are jobs that somehow some people feel they choose. You know mm. I choose to be you know an endocrinologist as opposed to you know another specialty. Mm. Um, but sometimes someone will tell you, you know, I'm a writer, I'm a poet, I am, you know, whatever. I'm a chef actually, as deeply as I am a woman mm-hmm. or as deeply as I am, you know, an American. It's 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 just a deep part of my soul. I can't imagine not being this and I can't imagine not doing this work. I mean, this is sort of who I am. I'm never going to have another job. That's not going to happen. This is mm-hmm. this is just what I do. Yeah. And so sometimes the, the, the now that's harder to explain the faith that Things are going to work out. That's going to be okay. And the thing about that faith, of course, is that it's necessary. Because without that faith, you, you give up sometimes. I mean, it's, it's easy to give up. Um, and so you need that faith. Now, sorry, to, to you know, the, the, the tricky part here is, to, is that that's okay as long as your idea is more or less a good one. You know, one, one of the tragedies mm-hmm. in life, and, and I think we've all met people like that, is people who have a terrible idea. Uh, and have faith that it will work Mm -hmm. and they spend their whole life pursuing something that is not going to happen and so sometimes when you have an idea it's really important to try to check out if it can work or not I mean then you know talk to smart people and see what they think and if no one agrees with you no one then maybe ask yourself you know what's going on
1: Um, uh, Best advice I was ever given, and I'm curious how you feel about this, uh, in terms of trying to figure out if an idea is a good one, because I think you just nailed the, I I see the same thing. People who have faith, and 10 years later, some of my friends from 10 years ago are still struggling with the same idea. They just believe, but it's not working. It's been a long time, Um, and it doesn't mean it won't work tomorrow. Some people try for 10 years, and then on the 11th year, it works, but Working out whether the idea is good or not is really hard. And best advice I was ever given was um, one of my mentors said, if you're not sure whether your idea is good or not, go to the 10 people in the world who are most invested in you, your immediate family, your friends, right, your, your spouse, the 10 people who are most likely to want you to succeed and tell them all your idea. And if none of them share your idea with somebody else, it's not a good idea. If it doesn't spread from that core group that's most invested in you. How do you feel about that?
0: Totally. I think I think that's one way, definitely. I think that it's, it's a really tricky thing, right? Because we all have stories of ideas that no one thought would work. Mm-hmm. Right? The world and, and you know, the high-tech world is full of legends of ideas, the science world of things that basically people thought they were crazy. And yet they worked, and that that's 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 risky because that can make you feel no matter what things will work. I think there are one you know two, two sort of keys to this. One is um, whatever it is that you're trying to do, make, produce, you know, sell, create, um, satisfy at least a need that you have. the, the, the one of the dangerous one of the risks of the dangerous ways of knowing something is probably possibly not a good idea is that you want to make something that you don't really need but you are sure that other people need. And no, if, if even you wouldn't use what you're trying to make, if even it's not satisfying a hunger or a need that you have, uh, that's probably not a great uh, start. Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, I mean, I've learned, I'll tell you sort of one quick thing. I've learned to be very careful, very careful about telling anyone else that their idea won't work. So I, I, I ask questions. People come to me and say, I have this idea. I'll ask some probing questions. I'll be inquisitive. But um, in 2000 specifically, uh, this guy came out to see me in New York and he worked for this thing called Craigslist, (laughs) which I had never heard of because Craigslist from 95 to 2000, 99 actually, was a San Francisco phenomenon. It was launched by Craig Newmark in in 95 in, in San Francisco. And for four or five years, it existed only in San Francisco. And if you weren't from San Francisco, I mean, he was incredibly patient. It took him five years to the side to launch the second city. And the second city was New York. Mm. Uh, And it's also, by the way, really interesting from a different perspective of the history of ideas and science. Why in those five years, no one anywhere copied the idea, right? Those are are fascinating questions. You have entire five years where something very simple is working in San Francisco and no one takes this uncopyrighted idea and makes it work somewhere else. He doesn't do it, and no one else does it either. It's fascinating.
1: Yeah, that is So this weird. guy
0: comes to talk to me. It was very memorable for a couple of reasons, but this guy comes to talk to me as sort of an emissary from, from, from Craigslist, and we have an office in the Empire State Building, and he makes me meet him downstairs because he has a phobia of elevators. Okay, whatever. So we meet in this little restaurant uh, downstairs, and he tells me about this thing called Craigslist that does this, it does that. And to me, it sounds like a totally sort of hippie San Francisco, whatever. People exchange bicycles and they give each other free things and whatever. And I will never do this again. I come out with my pronouncement. This will never work in New York. And basically, I, I declare knowingly that, that Craigslist is going to be a failure. And of course, it's been, you know, the most amazing success um, and so that was the last time, that was my lesson of of never telling anyone their idea won't work because what do I know? Mm-hmm. But you can definitely ask people questions mm-hmm. uh, and that can be helpful to everyone, I think.
1: So, Ami, we've been bouncing around talking about ideas, good ideas, bad ideas, pursuing things you're passionate about. Um, I would really like to dig in on what your big idea is Uh, what it has been with Idealist and and kind of what it is and what it's growing into lately. So you have a magnificent 30-minute talk that you gave just a few months ago. Uh, You watched it? I did. I watched it a couple of times in its entirety. Beautiful. And, And so first of all, you're an Excellent, excellent public speaker. Whoa, and, okay. No, you really are. And and a little bit later, you guys can't if, see me,
0: but I'm blushing now. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, if we, I mean, I was totally captivated by it. And uh, a little bit later, if we, if it, if we remember, if it makes sense, I'd love to come back and chat a little bit about like the art of speaking itself, because um, I think there's so much value in becoming a an excellent communicator, especially in a world where we like we've been talking about communication is kind of everywhere. We can communicate, but we're having trouble connecting, and, and I think there's a difference. But before we get to that, um, it, the talk was called Calling All Dreamers, right? I'd love to dig in a little bit because I think you really outlined in that talk what Idealist has been, what it is, where it's going. So I'd like to start here. You said we all want different things, and that was one of the problems. So what did you mean by that, and why is that a problem? Oh, okay. Well, well, yeah, it's a 30-minute it's a thing, which I'll, you know, just to sort of go
0: a bit of background. I think sure. that um, basically I think that we all or many of us feel that that the world could be better. That, that with all the resources we have, all the ideas we have, all the goodwill that we have, um, I think certainly when we're children and then, you know, people sort of try to hammer this out of us. But I think that we all feel that. Come on, of course the world. Could be, you know, we read about the fact that some people don't have drinking water. Mm-hmm. Like really, we you know we 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 have space flight and we don't have water. I mean, come on. And I think intuitively we all know that things will be better. But it's complicated. It's complicated because, as you just mentioned, for a couple of different reasons. One, we're many of us. We're almost eight billion. We're not twenty nice people on some island somewhere. And those eight billion uh, each care about many things. Uh, when we say a better world or a better community. We actually mean thousands of different things, better schools, less poverty, more whales. You know, we we mean many different things. And then for each of those things, we have, you know, many different opinions on how to solve them. We have egos and we have interests. So if you take, you know, one small chunk of that, you know, education, education in the U.S., uh, even the best intentioned people get into sort of horrible fights about public, private, charter, uh, you know, homeschooling. I mean, whatever. And these are even the people who agree that every kid deserves a great education. You know, that's out of those boundaries. You have those who say, "Well, whatever, my kids deserve a great education, your kids, whatever." So even those who agree, uh, then you know that's a problem. And so, what I say in that talk is, given all this noise, given all this agreement, what are three or four or five things that all of us can agree on? And if we can agree on those things, then we can do some amazing stuff. So if it's okay. I mean, I can just I can just say, um, one I think. There are some very fundamental values that I think that people all over the world, across religions, across nations, across languages, seem to agree on. And that is that all people should be able to lead a free and dignified life. Freedom and dignity seem to be something that most of us agree on. And some of us, or at least many of us agree, that getting there in a spirit of generosity and respect, mutual respect, would be great. So respect, generosity, dignity, and freedom, those values. Then how do we get there? there are three sort of problems or challenges that we can then turn into, into goals. One, there seems to be, all over the world, a big gap between intention and action. We, all of us, every day, see things that we would like to change, but for all kinds of reasons, we get busy, we, whatever, we have fears, we don't have time, and then we don't get involved. So we can close that gap if we can help more people just do one small thing sometimes. That'd be great. Second is that the world is full of all kinds of amazing ideas, That I've worked in many places, but those ideas don't have marketing budgets behind them, so we don't hear about them. Uh, Small ideas. You know, when when my wife first came to New York, we went to a park, and it was one of those little signs that said, um, no adults allowed in the playground without an accompanying child. Right? You (laughs) see what I mean? What are you as an adult doing alone in a playground? Where is your child? And she was like, oh, my God, that is brilliant. Every yeah. playground in Spain should have this. Mm-hmm. But it hasn't occurred to anyone in Spain, and no one has seen this. And so the world is full of big and small ideas like that that we just don't copy because we never hear about. And so how can you encourage you know, more sharing of more ideas? And lastly, I think, how do we make more connections? The, there's this image that I hope I can sort of just draw in words that, that, that sort of obsesses me that I think think about a, a, an apartment building anywhere in the world And on the 10th floor and on the fifth floor, sixth floor, whatever, there are two people looking out their windows and they're both seeing something out the window that they would like to change or make different. They would like to, you know, build a garden. There's a corrupt policeman in the street, whatever. They're both seeing something they would like to do something about. But they have no idea the person, you know, two floors above or below them is thinking the same thing or or a block away. And we have all this technology now. But we're not telepathic. It's amazing to me how Facebook, you know, Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, how all these technologies actually haven't solved that problem. We could all, in a city even, we can all be feeling the same thing and we will never know. You see it, by the way, in in, in meetings and committees. I mean, I'll just make a little side note here for a second. Is that, is that okay? Um, people talk about, you know, in the world, we talk about evil and cruelty and bad decisions and horrible things that happen. One thing I, I really believe strongly is that most of the of the horrible things that happen in the world are decided by committees and not by individuals. Um, an individual has a conscience. A committee doesn't have a conscience. Uh, you can always hide behind, if, if a group of people, if the board decided to, you know, lay off half the company, um, you can always go home and tell your, your partner, uh, your spouse, you know, well, I was against it, but the majority mm-hmm. voted for it. And what could I do? Um, and then she or he will ask you, well, did you actually raise your hand and fight? Well, well, what was the point? I knew I was in the minority. And and then you will not feel guilty. And the thing is that it's, it's easy for 10 people to decide to do a horrible thing and all 10 of them to fool themselves into thinking that it wasn't because of them, it was the other nine. And one of the amazing things that human beings haven't solved as a species is that we are we have no way of knowing what people on the table are thinking mm. unless they actually say so. It's sort of amazing. One person can propose something. All nine think it's the stupidest idea ever. And if they're afraid to say so, we'll never know. It's amazing. Right. So anyway, so how do you make more contact between people? And so if you, if you take this picture again of this building, how do you get two people to actually connect, then move to action, and then implement an idea uh, that maybe somebody else has had, and they could actually do where, where they are. So we can agree, again, is dignity, freedom, generosity, and respect. We can agree on more action, more ideas, and more connections. Um, and that's really what, what that talk is about. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I can say more, but I'll, I'll I'll let you ask a question once in a while.
1: Well, no, I um, I, I I was blown away by the the whole concept. Um, I love the idea that there's there's kind of three things that we can all uh, agree on. So so, uh, cap us off or give us a quick recap yeah. of what the actual three so, things so, were. So
0: so you know we can agree. I think on more action, more connection, more ideas. Where we are now though, and this is I think what you're aiming at is, okay, so great, we can agree on that. Now what can we actually do? How, what are the next steps? right? And there I think where we, where we landed and where I landed, you know, after sort of a long time of thinking about this, is that I think that I really believe, and I know how I know how this can sound and, and, and partly because it becomes such a big cliche, I really believe that we can change the world. I really believe that together we can build something that is much closer to what our intuition tells us is possible. If we agree on, on three simple things, and these are these are slightly different things. The first um, that I think we can agree on are those very broad and simple values I mentioned. More freedom and more dignity for more people. How in many different ways, but more freedom and more dignity for all people, not just my people, or your people, all people. So if you agree with that, awesome. Second, and that only happened more recently uh, because of this group that we launched on Facebook that sort of led us there, mm-hmm. Um, the, w- the the group is called Idealists of the World. Idealists Facebook. of the World. Idealists of the World on Facebook. And anybody yeah, you can, can find go it. on Anyone Facebook, can
1: join it. Yeah, there's forty thousand oh. people there doing amazing things around the world. I will make sure that um, there's a, a link to that in the in the show notes as well. But it's easy to find. I joined it uh, yesterday. So oh, thank you Sorry. so much. So uh, Idealists of the World. And so anyway, so the first thing uh, is is a set of
0: values. Then imagine, and all this this takes a bit of a of a of a sort of imaginative jump. Imagine if those values, the freedom and dignity had a symbol, had a logo. And this is this is interesting. All of us know the power of symbols, of logos, right? Anything from the, you know, the smiley sign, the incredible success of the recycling logo, which is another sort of amazing story, the incredible success of the rainbow flag and what's that meant for many people. And it's interesting that that these values of dignity and freedom that we all want, that you, every day you open a newspaper, somewhere, someone in the world is fighting for freedom and dignity. Imagine if those people shared a symbol, a logo that you saw anywhere. And you're like, oh my God, these are my people. They're fighting for the same things I believe in. And by you wearing, flashing, chalking, painting that logo, you'd be expressing, I am, I am with you. I am here for you. I see you, basically. So values and then a, a symbol to express them, to allow us to actually see each other. Because right now we're divided in so many ways by nationality, by religion, by ethnicity, that we've lost the ability of even seeing each other. We don't see humans; we just see labels. Mm. If you're suddenly wearing, or or you, you know, I, I see on your window this symbol, then I know that we're we're together in this. And then thirdly, uh, a day a month we call them idealist days, and it's a very specific. Uh, it's a long story how it happened, but it turned out you know how in different parts of the world dates are complicated because if you say seven six, mm. uh, it means. July sixth in the U.S., but it means June seventh in Europe. Yep. <laughs> but seven seven is the same in both places, and so we realized that uh, a couple of years ago, and we quote unquote we, we we grabbed those days two two three three four four six you know every month, and we're calling them idealist days—a day once a month where we're inviting people around the world to do one small thing to make things a little bit better, and you know it can be a big thing—you can organize a whole big event. Or it can be a small thing. And one one trick here, again, in, in sort of quotes, is to define this in a way that is so small, and small in quotes, because I think I really believe that nothing is small. Mm-hmm. The world is nothing but the sum of all our actions. And so every little action counts. But if you define it in a way that is so small that no one can tell themselves or others that they didn't have time to do this. I mean, if mm-hmm. if you know, if you're thinking about a monthly, you know, day of action, then you know, it's okay if the next time, uh, nine, nine, 10, 10, nine, nine is today, but you know, 10, 10, 11, 11. Um, if you just say, what I'm going to do next month is I'm going to spend five minutes thinking about what I'll do the following time. Yeah. That counts too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, smile at someone that you wouldn't have smiled at. Uh, uh, ask if your office building has a doorman, ask him his name for the first time. You've been wanting to do this, you know, all the way to much bigger things. Um, and that's because I think human beings, sometimes we it's helpful to have a milestone, to have a deadline, and to have uh, social permission. One of the, one of the sort of trickiest things about human beings is that sometimes, you know, you could knock on a neighbor's door. You know where your neighbor is. You could write an email. You could put up a flyer for many things at work, at home, in school. Do you feel it's okay? Do you feel you have social permission to do this? Or is it awkward? Is it weird? Um, people, I think human beings human beings um, spend so much effort and time and money building up status, right? We we spend our lives trying to be liked, trying to build up our social, you know, capital, our social status, that the older we get, the more we're afraid of losing social status, of suggesting something. And then people will think, oh my God, that's stupid. Or, you know, you're going to fail in public. And so having social permission, having a day a month, where everyone knows that this is the day in which many people will suggest many things would, I think, be really helpful. So to summarize, freedom and dignity for all, a symbol to represent that, and once a month, an opportunity to turn those values into action. That's what we are proposing.
1: And you're calling them idealist days, Idealist days, yes, yeah, so one, one, two, two, three, three. and uh, as long as everything goes to plan, as you mentioned, today that you're listening to this, the day that this launched should be nine nine, which is an idealist day. so what what do you think somebody, if they wanted to take advantage today if they're listening to the on the day that this podcast launched, um, what could they do today? I mean, you mentioned, you know, yep. get your doorman's name, sure. so, something as simple as that. Com- uh, compliment someone on there. I tell people all the time, you're, you're going to be in line at Starbucks or whatever. Instead of just going, here's $3, give me a cup of coffee, you know, just take an extra second to say, hey, what's your name, by the way? Of course. I tell people that all the time. They go, oh, it's John. You say, John, thanks so much. It's amazing how in three seconds of just getting someone's name and saying their name back to them, you can f- you feel Feel the energy shift, and, sure. and it sounds spiritual, and I'm and I'm not, and and I don't mean it in that way, but it, but you do feel something bigger than yourself happen, don't you?
0: Yeah, so I mean, let me talk about you know today, but also next month, the month after. Yeah. That. One one of the beautiful things of doing this thing monthly is that you never miss out, right? You can do it next month. You missed out one month, you can do it next. You don't have to do it every month. You can do it whenever you want. And so, um, in fact, if you know if today is is nine nine, go simply to ideals.org slash nine nine. And you'll see what people around the world are doing there. We have this map there. We have this live map where you can click and you can see what people are doing um, everywhere. And then you will be able to see ideas.org slash 10101010. What happens next month, you can then, you know, sort of add your own action. You can participate in events, et cetera. So, yes, you can do very small things. Also, bigger things, you know, volunteer. Look for a place to volunteer. Uh, organize your neighbors to do something. Raise your hand at work and say, hey, why don't we have a recycling program here? You know, what's up with that? Uh, make a suggestion, go on social media and, and actually say you'd like to, to participate in something. And if you work for, you know, an institution of any sort, I mean, there are so many ways if you yourself are at a nonprofit, uh, post an event for the next Idealist Day. Um, if you work for the media, how about once a month on Idealist Day, uh, your, you know, uh, radio station, TV station, you run a story about a great local nonprofit doing great work. Why? Because it's Idealist Day. Why not? So, there's so many ways of approaching this. Um, and when we talk to people, one way in which you see that this is possibly a good idea, to, back to your example before, is that people immediately start shooting back at you their own variants, their own ideas. So, you know, recently someone said, which I was like, I smiled, I thought, ooh, that's interesting. He said, what if this got big enough? Imagine if this got big enough that once a month in New York, whoever wanted to, uh, went into the subway on their way to work and they actually wore a name tag. Hmm. just that. And I would see your name. And if I wanted to, I would smile and I would say hello or not. But Mm -hmm. at least I would see that you are a human being with a name, right? Or um, another idea that we had recently, what if on those days, this idea of, of, you know, uh, Apple had this big campaign a long time ago that was called Think Different. Mm -hmm. And so what if we had a campaign that was called Eat Different? And what we mean by that is find someone different than you and have dinner with them. As simple as that, and we try to organize and sort of make that happen, you know, better. But like in a place like New York, you know, when does a Dominican family ever have dinner with a Korean family? Never. What Mm. if they actually host each other, you know, on that day? Why not? There's so many ways and we could, you know, cross and bridge and then you can get to much bigger stuff. You know, people can organize, you know, rallies and picnics and protests and it can get big, it can be small. The point is that all of us can do something. And one thing that surprised us, we started doing this last year, was yes, you've had sort of organized things, people going out, cleaning highways, cleaning beaches, uh, you know, feeding uh, kids, building a school. But then I think probably the single most surprising one to me was a man who posted, I think it was on 1010 last year, and he said, I've wanted to stop drinking for 20 years. Well, today is my last, you know, today was my last drink. I am not drinking anymore. And he used, that excuse of idealist day for that, which I found both moving and fascinating. So I think once you have this thing in your head that at least once a month, we're gonna think of how to make things better, then I think much more good can happen.
1: I love that last example, because that, that speaks to the fact that you don't have to go out and try to, eat. making things better for the whole world, making things better for others is great, but sometimes just making things better for yourself uh, indirectly makes the world a better place, makes things sure. better for others. If you better yourself, then everyone in your circle is going to be better and, and feel better around you and the and the ripples just go on and on. Um I'd love to take that idea and steer into the the kind of the the core theme or kind of the hook of this particular show, you know, One New Person, which is all about uh, chance encounters and ripple effects and that we have on each other since we're dancing around that. Do you have, you have so many stories. I, I, I love, I'm, I'm, I could listen to your stories all day. Um, do you have a particular story that comes to mind of somebody you met, a person you met randomly in your life, um, and, you know, and kind of the impact that it had on you or you on them or both. Uh, and you're welcome to, you know, take a second to, to think about that. You know, it could be, uh, you know, just some old lady you met on a bus once you had a five minute conversation with and. It changed your life. I, you know, for some people, they come on and tell me a story about, you know, they bumped into the hiring manager at the job of their dreams. Uh, that's, I think, uh, very cool, but much more rare. Um, do you have a, do you have something in mind, somebody? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know why this one comes to mind. I'll tell you in a
0: second. But I think one of one of the things that that I that I that I do a lot. I mean, the reason why it's like almost hard for me to decide because this happens quite a bit is that one thing I've found is that people love talking about themselves. and I and I and I mean that actually in the best way. I know in English when you say talk about yourself, it can have sort of a bad connotation. I think that people have stories and people love telling their stories and people love telling you about their work, people, et cetera. Um, and this is, I think, and, and, and in New York, which again, I know this audience is all over, in New York, it's very common to meet someone uh, at a gathering, at a party, wherever. And uh, they will start talking about themselves. They won't ask you a thing about yourself, uh, which is sort of, I find fascinating. And I actually, I have to say, I I like this. I like, because when I'm sitting by somebody in an airplane and we start talking or I'm sitting somebody anywhere and I get to ask them questions and they're happy to answer the questions, I get to learn so much. And And I'm going to say something very selfish now. If they don't ask me about myself, I'm pretty happy in the sense that I know my story. My story is boring. I've heard my story many times. I don't need to tell my story. And so if we have two hours together on this flight, uh, I had a flight a couple of years ago that was, that was awesome. It was this guy who flies a couple of times a week, uh, lives in Detroit. And he flies a couple of times a week uh, in and out to every city in this country because he has this very specific job. He's a financial advisor to car dealerships, works alone at home. And he advises car dealers was on their work. Okay, so I knew nothing about the depths of the car industry, the relationships between dealerships and the producers, all the laws around this, 100 years of tradition, blah, blah, blah. So I spent two and a half hours from Portland to Detroit, interviewing him, basically, about his life. And he gave me a two-hour lesson about, about the depths of the car industry in this country that I would have never known. And he didn't ask me a single question. <laughs> but from my point of view, those two hours were well spent because they were entirely spent on him. And that was fantastic. Mm. Uh, and so I do this a lot. Um, I'll tell you one 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 story that I don't know why it came to mind and it sort yeah, of stuck please. with me. Um, uh, a few years ago, I was looking for for a place to live in New York for an apartment. I ended up renting this place in this brownstone um, in the city. And the landlady uh, was an older uh, woman. She must have been about, 80 then and there was something about her that reminded me uh very much of my mother she uh must have been well I know exactly actually she was 13 years older than my mother would have been at the time um my mother you know passed away 20 years ago it it, it's Mm. it doesn't matter but um at the time yeah. yeah it's it's uh so at the time this woman was like 80 um and and she was my mother's height she was my mother's sort of shape um and when she met me There was this immediate sort of chemistry and she said, oh, yes, yes, please come live here. And then she immediately hugged me, which I thought was sort of just wonderful. And I came to live there and it was great. And then about a year later, I was sitting on the stoop and she was coming back from having dinner uh, somewhere. And so we, you know, sat and chatted. She just chatted with me for a second. And somehow we landed on when and where she had been born. So She was born in 1926 in Poland, 1923, sorry, in Poland before the war. And uh, she started telling me about her her escape from the the Nazis and stuff. And uh, at some point, I asked her sort of you know when when were you born? And she said August of of uh, of twenty three. And I got this like weird feeling because my mother was was born August twelfth. And um and I asked her um so what day in August? And the weird thing is that there was like. Tenth of a second, you know how sometimes you 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 spill a cup, you spill a glass, mm-hmm. and there's this moment where your eyes know that it's going to flip, <laughs> but your hand is too slow to stop it, and you, you're aware that you messed up. <laughs> and so there was this moment where I asked her what date, and I knew she was going to say the 12th. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. And she said the 12th. And... And it, it, it's, it's a strange story to me because I don't believe in astrology. Uh, I don't. But a year earlier, she had reminded me of my mom. I thought about her the whole year, someone who reminds me of my mom. And then it turns out that she was born the same day as my mom, 16 years earlier. And it was just, I don't know, I can't explain it. It was incredibly moving, um, weird and wonderful. So that's your story. Huh.
1: Weird and wonderful, and yeah. you're still thinking about
0: it. Yeah, I mean, you asked me, so that, yeah. that one came to mind for some reason. That's something that was just like, wow,
1: okay. What? Uh, why did that come to mind? Well, I mean, what What about that? It's, it's so interesting. That's that's the second time in our conversation that you've cautioned a story with, I don't really believe in this stuff, but. I don't really believe in this, yeah. but. So how, how, how do these faith moments kind of, how do these keep coming up? What is that? I don't, why do you think? I do I
0: don't know. Like I knew. I
1: mean,
0: I mean, I know that you know some of your listeners, of course, may believe in astrology, and that's totally fine. I just find it hard to believe that you know that we're neatly divided into twelve ways of being. I think we're more complicated. I know astrology is also more complicated than that. anyway. So, so of course, the, the 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 paradoxical thing here is that is that of course, if any listener here believes in astrology, uh, she's like, you see, of course. <laughs> so that's great, awesome. You got it. You got you got me, but. I don't know. To me, it was more the weirdness of the moment of knowing I knew she was going to say that, mm. and she did. And so the moment she said it, in a sense, it was of less surprising because I knew it was coming in the strangest way. So I don't know. That That's why I feel that without essentially being part of an organized ritual or an organized religion, sometimes I feel that, that life is more complicated than we than we may um Think you know one one thing to say about this again without in any way uh, offending anyone or anything. I think that sometimes you know atheists uh, sort of you know very like strong believing sort of atheists who are convinced there is nothing out there. They sort of make me smile because they remind me of deeply religious people. In other words, how do you <laughs> know? I mean, what, what what you know? How are you so sure one way or the other? I don't
1: I don't get it kind of conviction um, just on the other side.
0: Exactly. And so in that sense I am sort of much more deeply agnostic. I just I just admit that I don't know. I don't mm. I don't know. I mean some things uh, make me think, you know, really, I mean, are we alone or really I mean, I, I get the whole evolutionary science. I totally understand it. Um, and yet I don't understand, you know, what happens between bacteria and 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 sort of, you know, us and how we get here. But then the Ninth Symphony comes along. Yeah. And sort of I, I understand how the hand of a, you know, an orangutan or a chimpanzee evolves into our hand. I get that. I get how mm-hmm. we can hold on to a branch and, you know, eat an apple. I get that. But from that to Bach, from that to Mozart, from that to Rembrandt, I don't know. Yeah. And and so that that, and again, people can sort of, you know, Ridicule this one way or the other, but I just don't know. I'm not sure, and I don't, and I shy away from being sure one
1: way or the other. Why do you think so? I feel like so many people are afraid to say I don't know about anything? Uh, oh my god, this is well that that's a huge <laughs> sorry that's a huge pet peeve. I mean that's the
0: that's the curse of our time. I mean that's a curse of, of of punditry. That's a curse of Sunday morning shows, right? I mean, basically everyone wants or needs to be an expert on anything, and and uh, I feel. Truly, I'm not, I'm not saying this in any sense of full modesty, that, you know, the older I get, the less I know. I, I, I read this wonderful paragraph that, that someone whose name I unfortunately can't remember, this writer who was in China for 10 years. And he said, you know, when, when I was here for a year, um, I felt, oh, my God, I've learned so much. I can write a book about China with great certainty. And then he said, you know, after five years, I felt I could write an essay, and then today I can maybe say three bullet points with great certainty. Um, life is very complicated. Life is very complicated. People are complicated. And so there is so much we don't know that it's great to know certain things, but to also feel very confident to say, I don't know, I have no idea, I don't have a clue about that. Ask somebody else. Do you believe in luck? Luck, um, I believe in being ready. Um, you know, Picasso has this wonderful saying that he says that uh, yes, inspiration exists, but it should find you working.
1: <laughs>
0: and 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 there's something about um, I think things, interesting things, call them lucky things, bad luck, good luck, happen around us all the time. Are we ready for them? Are we ready to notice and and sort of reach out to? Something. Mm. Are we open to something that's you know that's coming um, our way? Because I think we are we are surrounded by by so much. I mean, is this making sense? We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're we're surrounded by by so very much. And the question is, what do we what do we do with that? You know, there's so many opportunities around us. So I think I believe in luck to a certain extent. Um, I also believe that we make our own luck by by taking opportunities or not. Um, partly, and again, and again, maybe just to you know this, I think I'm also I'm extremely aware of my own mortality. I'm extremely aware that, um, and I also believe pretty strongly again. What do I know mm. that nothing much happens after? Uh, I'm aware of my mortality, and so I think that that on the one hand, I take life very seriously. Things are very important. On the other hand, they're not that important. In the end, we're all going to pass anyway. Uh, and after a while, nobody's going to remember us anyway. And mm-hmm. so take risks. You know, What's the worst thing that can happen? Like, whatever.
1: So do you... No, no, you no, know. no. Two two things on that. I'm, I'm curious, uh, would you consider yourself lucky? Um, and I'm also curious, because you mentioned uh, at some point we're going to be forgotten anyway. Are you yep. concerned about... Your legacy? Do you think about your legacy? Are you uh, so, yeah? Well, first of all, so yes and no.
0: (laughs) (laughs) On to the next question. No, I think I consider myself extremely lucky in the sense that, um, just in the sense of of probabilities, right? There there are people born all over the world. Um, I am extremely lucky in that I've always or almost always had something to eat. Um, I was educated. I was born in a free, Part of the world. Um I had, you know, a family and parents. Uh nobody hit me. Nobody beat me up when I was a kid. Um, there are so many horrible things to, that 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 can happen to you. But in that sense, I'm lucky. I'm already 58 and I'm still alive and I'm still healthy. That is awesome. You know, many people aren't. Um, and so and so in that sense I I, I feel very lucky. Um, I have an amazing wife. I have an amazing daughter. I have some very good friends. I mean, these are all things that we can take for granted. Uh, I feel very lucky. There's a good word in English. I feel fortunate. Mm. You know, it's it's interesting. You, you know, good luck and good fortune. I feel very fortunate and lucky and privileged to have all these things, and I'm and I'm aware and I'm and I feel very thankful for all of them. Um, legacy. Uh, I don't know. I I I think that um, I would like for people to say some nice things about me at my funeral, cry a couple of jokes. Hmm. And then I don't really, uh, legacy in a sense, you know, people, um, some people, some people, uh, are so full of themselves and yet, let's be real. I mean, uh, do you know the name? And, and this is a, it's a trick, a trick question. The answer is no. Do you know the name of uh, Truman's, President Truman's Secretary of Agriculture? Of course not. Of course not. You know, It's possible, it's possible that his, and it was a him, that his grandchildren do. You know, grandpa was secretary of agriculture. Great. At the time, this man probably, probably was so full of -hmm. his own secretariness of agriculture. He was a secretary of agriculture. He, somebody else, Mm -hmm. was the ambassador to Vietnam, the ambassador to France in 1895. Oh, my God. Who cares a hundred years later? Mm -hmm. Were you a good person? Uh, Did you, you know, have a loving family? Did you have good friends? Um, You know, sometimes I I read these amazing profiles in New Yorker, for example, right? You get these amazing articles about someone and you know that that article in that week sort of made that person's day, that person's month, that person's year. Mm -hmm. Everyone who knows that person is going to be so excited. Five months, five years later, they will remember this. Most of us will have forgotten how many profiles of people you don't know can you keep in your head. So life just moves on. And I think what matters really is what we do um, every day with that day that we have, you know, after that, who knows? I
1: don't know. Um, it's a great answer. I appreciate that answer. Thank you. Um I'd like to bring things in uh, yeah. here because I think we're at a, I think I think we've covered a lot of a lot of ground um, in, a, in a really really positive way um, before I ask you one final question uh, where would you like folks to go find you your organization what do you want them to do right now as soon as they finish listening List, finish listening to my outro but after that where would you like them to go uh, go to idealist any day
0: to find sort of great things to do where you are uh, specifically now, Go to deals.org slash 99, just the two, the two numbers, 99, to see what's happening today, or 1010 or 1111 to see what's happening in the next few months. There'll be this this uh, interactive map uh, of the world every month um, where you can basically see what we are doing, or you can just very quickly add a little pin, a little dot, and say what you want to do, uh, wherever you are, and have people join you uh, or not. So just go to deals.org and then go from there.
1: We will make sure that everything is everything we mentioned is in the show notes. I'm also going to make sure that there's um, there's a direct link uh, to the Idealist logo because you mentioned earlier, and that's the one thing we're kind of missing doing an yep. audio podcast, which is your your logo, well, our logo, as you like to say, uh, the Idealist logo that we've all yes, please uh, for for the for the video that that may or may see, not be on YouTube.
0: You the circle, it's basically yellow. Blue and green circle. It's beautiful. That people can just make on their own, or you can just take it. Uh, that's the basic idea. It's basically a yellow circle surrounded by a green and a blue circle, and that sort of does it.
1: And and, and it looks like it's been painted, and it's it's beautiful. Just out of curiosity, I know that on on idealist.org you can uh, download it and use yep. it for anything um, in various formats. Uh, but also, do you have available? I didn't see. Have you made it available on t-shirts, stickers, anything for people to purchase? Is that out yeah. there?
0: We we don't we we don't want to make any, we don't make any money out of this, but people were asking us for this. And so we told them two things. One, either go and make your own. It's easy and cheap and just whatever. Two, there's this online store that we have on on a site called Zazzle. Zazzle with two oh, Zs, Zazzle.com slash idealist. You can go there and you can take a t-shirt, you can take earrings, the logo lends itself to all kinds of cute things. That's great. I, so, I, I was looking because um, I was like,
1: I, I want, I want yeah. a stick. I want a t-shirt. So I'll send you the so <laughs>
0: zazzle.com slash idealist. Again, we don't make any money on this. It's just a delivery mechanism, but you can go and or you can copy ideas from there and just make your own. We're happy to, for you to do that. We don't. This is not for us, it's for you
1: and i and i think that the logo is such an important part of that three step process because you had mentioned earlier labels and a, a lot of times we we speak about labels in a very negative connotation and here's a way that you've kind of taken labels back from their negative connotation and said if if you can put this if everybody's got that logo on i know that you're trying to do good in the world and and you got something here
0: yeah i mean uh, just just maybe one last thing here which i think that one one concept that may be important here is the idea of, of a bridging label right so if I say that I'm from religion X or country X and you're from religion Y or country Y, that's pretty exclusive. I, I can't be a Catholic Muslim. You know, it, doesn't, it doesn't work mm-hmm. that way. And if you're a Muslim and I'm a Catholic or if I'm Jewish and you're a Buddhist, well, we're different, right? But if suddenly I say, well, I'm a swimmer, mm-hmm. like, ooh, I'm a swimmer too. Right. We can both be swimmers across our differences and that becomes for us – a bridging identity Mm. and so you, you can use these labels to basically pull people apart or you can have a bridging label that takes all our differences and says oh but we all are scientists or we all love music in this case no we're all idealists we all believe in freedom and dignity and so we can we can use that label to actually come together as opposed to be pulled apart so in that way it can also be helpful i think
1: I love that and it just makes me think of an example Simon Sinek gave once um I mean everything he he says is wonderful but but one he gave this great example where he said if you know if you're in New York and you meet someone else who's from New York, who cares? You can't just be like, hi, I'm also from New York. They'll be like, go away, I'm busy, and it's New York. But if, you know, if you're in, in you know, Spain, and you hear an American accent, and you go, hey, I'm from New York, and they go, I'm from New York, you go, suddenly you're best friends, because you're further away from your home base, the same label. And if you're even further away, and you hear an accent, you go, I'm from New York, and they go, you know, I'm from California. Right. That just being from the U.S. Is, is is enough, and the further away you get from your comfort zone, the less the specific the labels have to be. And I think that this this logo you've got is something like that that gives yeah. everybody a chance. So, um, thank you so much. It's, it's great. great. I, I've got one final question. If you've got uh, you sure. got time, of course. All right, um, we. Bounced around so many different ideas. And one of the things I keep thinking about is we were talking really early on about education. Uh, we were talking about kind of young people, young professionals. Um, and you were talking about, you know, passion and following and ideas and all this. So if you could cap this off with just one piece of advice to the young adults, the young professionals that really want to. They want to make a positive change. They want to make an impact. They want to leave behind something good in the world. They're not sure what they're doing yet, which is so common for young professionals, young adults right now. What would you tell them? Wow, you caught me here. Uh, You know, one piece of advice. I think,
0: you know, there's so many cliches out there and your mom has told you most of them. If you emphasize this issue of, of, of young people, I would actually say be patient. Be patient with yourself. Uh, There's something, um, when we were 22, 23, 24, 25, there's this conviction we have, it's almost embedded in our brains, that every decision we make is somehow final and irreversible. It's going to affect our whole life. And then by the time you're 30, you realize that that was BS, that that was absolutely wrong, that it doesn't, that, that if you, you know, I'll give you a specific example. You you think you want to be a doctor. So you go and you study, you know, sort of medicine, and you spend three years doing that. And you're like, you know what? I made a horrible mistake. I don't want to be a doctor. Well, drop it. And what, what happens is this feeling of like, oh my God, but I just threw away three years of my life. And no, no, just throw it away. You're 23 or 24. By the time you're 28, it won't matter. Uh, don't, you know, and so this idea of just it's it's okay. Things are gonna work itself out, themselves out, and just be loving and patient with yourself just give yourself that time um love yourself as much as the people who love you love you you know don't don't love yourself less than they do just be patient and loving with yourself and the rest will usually take care of itself
1: ami thank you so much for taking the trip out to chat today um i've i've really really enjoyed this conversation thank Thank you. you so much you're great thank you so much I'm pretty speechless here, but before you head to zazzle.com idealist to pick up your idealists of the world mug, I mean, I already did, here are a few takeaways from this episode. First, our tendency to see different people as quote others is where almost everything goes wrong. Before we judge others or worse, act on those judgments, let's first consider what we have in common, the desire for a free and dignified life. Second, resist the urge to tell others their big idea won't work. Big ideas almost always sound ridiculous, until they're not. And finally, Ami said it so well, all I can do is quote him, love yourself as much or more than the people who love you, love you. If you find value in the conversations on this podcast, remember to subscribe via your favorite podcast streaming service or on OneNewPerson.com. While you're there, check the show notes for related links. And if you'd take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, I'd be very grateful. If you're interested in the book that started all of this, head to ThreeNewPeople.com and use the code one new person, all spelled out, all one word for 20% off a personalized signed copy of the book with bonuses. I'm Brian Miller, this is One New Person, and we'll see you next time.